0: after a year when Chicago saw more than 800 homicides, a 25-year high. Leaders at the neighborhood, city, and state level are strategizing on how to reduce violent crime. Here's Governor J.B. Pritzker laying out a few measures during his State of the State address on Wednesday. Smart investments in frontline personnel, in
1: protecting witnesses, in community renewal, in mental health, in economic opportunities, and in solving crimes are the best ways to reduce violence on our streets.
0: Meanwhile, Mayor Lori Lightfoot wants the feds to target illegal gun trafficking, a moratorium on electronic monitoring for violent offenders. And she wants to go after assets held by gangs. Some of the ideas out there, they have to do with our criminal justice system others with the community. Hannah Love studies what works to reduce violent crimes in U.S. cities. She's an associate researcher with the Brookings Institution, and she joins us now. Hi, Hannah. Welcome to Reset.
1: Hi. Thank you for having me.
0: Hannah, you really focused your research on the relationship between violence and place or community uh, along four dimensions. Can you tell us about those four dimensions?
1: Sure. Um, First, I think it's kind of important to establish the trends between violence and place. And so, as you mentioned at the start of the program, every single city has seen a a huge increase in homicides, particularly gun homicides. As you mentioned, Chicago especially is is seeing that large increase. But what's happening really is that the increases are happening within communities where violence was previously already concentrated. Um, So within cities, gun violence is typically only concentrated within a very small set of disinvested neighborhoods. And then within those neighborhoods, violence is only concentrated in a small percent of street segments. So the four things that I wrote about were really looking at small micro level interventions to target gun violences in the streets that they're
0: most likely uh, to occur. So what does that relationship look like actually look like day to day?
1: Yeah. Um, So day to day, it really looks like the vast majority of gun violence occurs in a, in a small number of places. So in New York city, for example, one percent of streets account for a quarter of all crimes in the city and five percent of streets account for half of the crimes in the city. So when we talk about these large trends that are citywide or even national, we're really only talking about a few select places. And these are often places where um, there's been chronic disinvestment. So, you know, these are places that have experienced they are often formerly redlined places. They've experienced racial segregation. They have high poverty rates, um, poor funding for schools. Um, they often lack the adequate community resources, and so my research is really focused on how we can kind of target those root causes mm-hmm. of violence rather than looking at the symptoms.
0: Well, um, relatedly, you talk as you talk in the report about these this high rate uh, of violence happening disproportionately in these specific neighborhoods. You mm-hmm. you say it stems from something called policy violence. Mm-hmm. What do you define as policy violence?
1: So policy violence is actually referring to a lot of the things that led to violence in the first place. So this is when we saw highways cutting through Black communities predominantly and really kind of disrupting the economic life and commercial corridors that existed in a lot of neighborhoods in the 1960s. Policy violence is where we see um, the most common thing being funded within these neighborhoods being police rather than actual community-based institutions. So policy violence is all of the choices um, that were that led to the disparities, disparities in violent crime that we see now. And so there are also studies that are showing um, that the very same places that were red lines um, back in the 60s uh, are the very same places where there's higher rates of gun violence now. Mm-hmm. So there's a direct there's a direct correlation between what I call policy violence and uh, actual violence.
0: The CDC reported that a uh, 30% increase in, uh, in the national murder rate between mm-hmm. 2019 and 2020. What were some theories of why that number rose that year?
1: Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a lot of theories. Um, Some of them have some more evidence behind them than others. Um, I think that one that's blatantly obvious is the fact that our nation was in the middle of a pandemic, um, which caused a lot of economic hardship and, and stress. And I think what my research really focuses on is that the very things that keep communities safe were the very things that the pandemic prevented us from doing, right? So having social connections with people around you, going to school, going to after-school programs, having employment, these are all things that keep people safe. Our civic institutions, things like libraries, everything shut down. And they created a situation where, um, you know, people didn't have things to do and they were in a very dire economic situation. So I think that that is predominantly what my research focus o- focuses on there are some people that are blaming you know you'll hear people blaming the defund the police movement but that actually doesn't have any uh weight behind it because most cities do not actually defund the police um so there's a lot of theories being out there um yeah. but i think that what i mean one thing that i try to point to is that the increases that goes back to my connection to place the increases in violence are occurring within those very same neighborhoods that they were already happening so it's not like we're seeing violence distributed throughout cities at a larger scale which you would imagine would happen if say a citywide defunding the police or citywide protests against police you would see you would assume mm-hmm. that violent crime would disperse um, in larger geographic areas and it's really not it's just becoming worse in those areas where it was already concentrated
0: so that 30 percent increase that that number that statistic doesn't tell the whole story.
1: Absolutely. And that statistic doesn't tell the whole story from a historical context as well, because while it's an, it's a, it's the largest one-year increase that we've had in violent crime since recording in 1960, it's actually not the most violent our nation has ever been. We saw much higher murder rates in the 1990s. So it's very alarming, um, but it also requires some contextualization.
0: So when we think about a city like Chicago, Anna, that has... Highly racially and socioeconomically segregated neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. What kind of solutions work best?
1: Yeah, so there is a huge evidence base that um, that are showing the value of investing in communities. So certain strategies such as um, increasing the amount of green space in a neighborhood, improving the quality of housing adding street lighting, investing in after-school programs, and increasing the number of neighborhood organizations can meaningfully reduce violence. Um, So there are a few randomized control trial studies outside of Philadelphia, or within Philadelphia, which also um, struggles with segregation as well, that found that just by transforming vacant lots in high-crime neighborhoods, they were able to reduce violence by 29%. Um, And they also found that by implementing repairs to homes, so getting things like Um, proper roofing uh, on homes and and creating safe places for people to stay, crime was reduced by 21.9%. So there's a huge evidence base that you can really focus on community-level improvements, and that will have as significant of an amount in decreasing violent crime than more punitive interventions.
0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we are talking with Brookings Institution Researcher, Hannah Love, about how investing in place can reduce violence in a community. Coming up on the program, we'll visit a haven for ski jumpers. It's hidden right here in the Chicago suburbs. So stay tuned for that. Um, Hannah, talk more about how policymakers could use this information to come up with ordinances or legislation that would effectively combat violence and crimes. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. Um, So we're already seeing this happen in a few cities across the nation. So Indianapolis, for instance, their city council just voted to revamp how they distribute their Community justice grants to focus actually on prioritizing funding in the highest crime neighborhoods to fund community based organizations to give job training, mentoring, and housing programs. So they actually reallocated their funding sources and they prioritized more dollars to those neighborhoods that have the highest crime rates. And they're really doing this as part of an equity move rather than distributing resources equally. They're saying, no, we need to shift from punitive interventions into more community based ones, and the money needs to go where the crime is the highest. we also see cities like philadelphia doing this dedicating their criminal justice funding into community based nonprofits to actually address um, to address violence in a in a root cause way and so i think that that is probably one of the most important things that cities can do is kind of transition those dollars that typically go to these more reactive individual level punitive interventions into ones that are really more focused on the community level. It's, it's a shift in mindset and it's a shift uh, in funding resources.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk about some ways that um, the cities have tried to combat violence uh, that really haven't worked. What's, mm. what's this broken windows theory, for instance? Yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah. So broken windows is almost the <laughs> antithesis of the kind of interventions that we're talking about right now. So broken windows is the idea that if you're in a high crime neighborhood, one small low level um, crime will lead to other ones. And so therefore, you need to police low level offenses, you need to police things like vagrancy, loitering, um, all things that are pretty relatively minor, you need to police them to the toughest extent, because that will deter more crime. Um, and that's been largely debunked and has actually led to untold harms in communities. Because I think that one thing that we need to recognize is that, the fabric of community life is disrupted when people are removed from their communities through incarceration and through jails. Um, So broken windows is a failed policy in terms of kind of addressing these place-based drivers. So are things like stop and frisk. I mean, that's now deemed unconstitutional, but Mm -hmm. stop and frisk kind of was the same idea. It's that you target people in high crime neighborhoods and you try to deter crime. And what ended up actually happening is there's a lot of research now that shows that youth, particularly young uh, men and women of color who were stopped, now um, were more likely to have dropped out of school and are more likely mm-hmm. to have distrust of the police. So these more punitive interventions really actually cause more harm.
0: What does it take so long for folks to realize that those approaches are largely ineffective?
1: Mm, I think it's because... Uh, we live in a very individualistic society. So it makes a lot of sense for people to focus on the individual perpetrator of a crime rather than looking at the neighborhood conditions. I think that it's, it's really is a mindset shift. We think that we can rely on the criminal justice system to target individual people. And we don't want to look at the root causes because a lot of times fixing the root causes is slower. Mm -hmm. Um, but in reality, it's also, it's more cost effective and it leads to better outcomes and economic outcomes, community life outcomes. It's really a more holistic way
0: to look at safety. I believe you touched on this before, but you, you did cite in, in the report more than a few studies that found that improvements to public areas, so the green spaces, the parks, that mm-hmm. also helps to drop the violence rate in those areas. Can you explain why exactly?
1: You know, that is a good question. I think that a lot of the times you <laughs> people gather in kind of public spaces and they take pride in kind of nice community spaces that exist within their neighborhood and the alternative thing happens to if you're walking around your neighborhood and you're seeing trash everywhere you're seeing vacant lots you're not seeing adequate street lighting um, you're seeing roads that are that are crumbling um, you start to see that the city isn't taking pride in your neighborhood that no resources are actually there and then there's no space to foster social connections with your neighbors there's no spaces to really get to know each other and to get and so, I think that by actually physically improving um, the conditions of a neighborhood, you kind of encourage more pride within that neighborhood, and you mm-hmm. also provide more opportunity for people to get together and kind of form those social cohesion and social connections that we know help reduce violence.
0: And, and as we think of solutions to to fighting these high rates of, of violence, Hannah, do you think gun control laws have a place? in this Absolutely.
1: I do think that as well. Um, but I think that, you know, <laughs> there have always been guns. Obviously, we saw gun purchases rise during the pandemic. Right. Um, but I think that it's going to take really this holistic approach. Gun gun control laws definitely have their place. But absent other more uh, holistic investments within community, it's, it's slapping a Band-Aid onto a larger problem.
0: Given all that we've Discuss, Tana, do you think that these solutions would be effective in most major cities or are there specific conditions that you think would make this more successful in certain areas?
1: Um, Absolutely. I think that these kind of interventions are successful in most cities from every, so from the research perspective, in every urban and non-urban setting in which place-based interventions have been studied, they have been effective. And so I think that we're really seeing here whether or not you live in a rural town, in a suburban community, in an urban neighborhood, it's really these kind of holistic community indicators of well-being that reduce violence.
0: Hannah Love is an associate researcher with the Brookings Institution. Hannah, thanks for breaking that down. Rick, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.